The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Voice America welcomes you to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Now, here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. First time using Skype. I'm really embarrassed to say that after seven years on the air. But I have a very um, respected colleague and friend who practices family law, but practices with very, very unique perspectives, and I would say effective perspectives, and gets a lot of press because of his unique points of view. He cares very, very much about his clients. He cares very, very much about psychology and not just the business of family law. Um, And he gets a lot of press because of that, and he blogs a lot, and he's been in a lot of law trades and traditional press, and it's my very, very distinct pleasure to have Mark Baer on the air with me today. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Sydney. Thank you so much for inviting me as your guest on your show. I'm really thrilled to have you, and I shall I say you're my first Skype guest. It's a non-video Skype, but um, for years, Voice America has told me that I would sound better via Skype rather than the old school phone, and here I am, and here you are, so it's a momentous occasion. Hey, I hope it works. I, I just did a, a, my last uh, radio interview was while I was on Skype, and, and I don't think my connection was um, so great, but you sound terrific, so I'm sure it will be wonderful. Well, I'm glad. You might hear a chirp here and there because we couldn't figure out how to disable the sound through this particular Skype channel, but it will make it sound sexy and new technology-like, don't you think? <laughs> I like I, that. I try to find the brightest, the brightest star. Now, Mark, you, you know, I adore you. I'm fortunate enough to have become fast friends with you, but I think you also know that I'm fascinated with your approach to law. We had um, the opportunity to have drinks together at Nick's, and for those who don't know what Nick's is, it's a very popular, um, popular vodka bar in the middle of Beverly Hills that happens to have really great food, too. And you go into a vodka freezer and you experience every vodka and every flavor that you could ever imagine. And, um, you know, that was a lot of fun. And you put your warm hats on, otherwise you'll freeze to death. But that aside... You are so focused and so serious about practicing your area of law ethically and um, the way that comes from the heart, um, you know, and caring about people as people rather than just statistics. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, thank thank you so much. And and I hope I come across that way also while I'm wearing one of those Russian hats and and, uh, fur coats that they give us to wear in the... um, in the in the freezer at Nick's, but <laughs> you know what's so funny? It's like you could be in a really jovial situation or a close friend talk situation, but if I or somebody else brings up a topic that's serious, your eyebrows will kind of scowl, 
and you go into serious <laughs> mode. And I think that shows such a range of character and tremendous focus. And it demonstrates that you are such a great person with a big heart, but yet there's an overpowering intellect because you could switch into serious guy just by being prompted with a trigger word. And that's amazing about you. So, you know, yes, I still saw it in the freezer, but if I brought something up that was serious, you would scowl. <laughs> you're, you're, you're good at reading faces. And, you know, um, I do want to point out that, that one of the things that we learn is so important uh, for somebody who does mediation-type work, and probably for anyone in life, is to be able to read faces. Emotional intelligence is very important. And when you're sitting in a, in a room, if I'm sitting in a mediation, I'll be doing one today from 10 to 12. When I'm sitting in a mediation, it's important for me to be able to look at somebody's body language and facial expressions and get a sense as to whether the person is uncomfortable, whether what they're saying is how they really feel or whether they feel compelled to say that. You know, there's so much that we can learn from watching somebody's body language and facial expressions, and I don't think enough of us uh, take that into account. Uh, I think that's true, and that's probably why you could really delve deep into a client situation. Because sometimes it's very emotional in the law that you deal with. You're dealing with families. You're dealing with children. You're dealing with divorce. Um, you're dealing with situations that, you know, are very emotional. And because you're keen on reading that, you're going to react to a way that's going to give them, in a way that's going to give them comfort and make them, you know, trust you. And I would imagine, you know, you have all kinds of constituents that you have to deal with when you're in a court of law and you're speaking with a judge, you know, you're very, very good at reading each other, too. I, you're so right about emotional intelligence and the ability to read body language facial expressions. It probably makes you so much more intuitive and successful when you're working or fighting on behalf of your clients. Well, thank you. And, and it's important, obviously. I mean, I'm not... Uh, if I'm not in a deposition with somebody or in court, I'm not going to see the facial expression of the other side, uh, but at least I can get a sense of my own client and their comfort or if they're accepting something or saying something for some reason other than, you know, maybe they just want to, maybe they, maybe they want to resolve uh, their case and give away the, everything because they have a sense of guilt. And the reality is, for example, that um, there would be very few, if any, divorce situations or breakups in which it's one-directional. There's somebody who, a colleague of mine wrote a book, and in the book talked about a concept called turning. And, And, you know, for example, what she was saying in the book is that, let's say that a husband is away from work, uh, I mean, away from home a lot, not coming home for meals very often, coming home late because they're at work, and the wife is getting frustrated because the husband is working so late. Well, if they delve into this deeper, they may find that he didn't used to go to work that often, and that every time he came home, there was a fight. And so therefore he started working longer hours. 
And so there are many factors that cause the marriage to fall apart. It may ulti- you know, it's ultimately the person who makes the announcement or files the papers. But there are many, many things that happen in the course of a marriage that cause one thing after another to occur. And then to blame your spouse for being responsible for the marriage breakdown because they they were the final person that did something or um, they're the ones who filed for the divorce. You're not accepting personal responsibility, sadly, a lot of us don't accept personal responsibility. You know, we play the blame game. But this then goes this then goes to the fact that when people have second marriages and third marriages, that the statistics are that the second marriages are less stable than the first and the third marriages are even less stable than the second. And the question then becomes why? And the answer is now we get into psychology. The answer is because the people who had been in a marriage before and the marriage failed, they don't accept their part in the breakdown of that marriage. And so they get into a new marriage, new relationship, and they still never fixed the issue that was causing problems in the first marriage. It was all their spouse's fault. And they get into the second one. Oh, and probably by that point, they're in the second one or the third one with somebody who was also in a marriage that failed. Um, And so you have two people who are not accepting their responsibility for the failure of their first marriage, not dealing with it through psychology or uh, something of that nature, and they just are blaming the other spouse. So when we look at statistics, you know, people talk about the percentage of marriages that fail. My, I, I studied statistics in college. It was one of the things I tutored statistics. It was part of my major. The statistics are malleable. You can play with them. The statistics change as we remove or add things. So, therefore, if I remove from the divorce statistics marriages that failed after, you know, third marriages that failed, if I take those out of the mix and I take the second ones out of the mix and I'm only including first marriages that fail, the percentage is going to change. It's the second and third ones that, that bring the statistics up significantly. Um, you know, or if, or if people get married when they're younger, less educated, um, those marriages tend to fail at a faster rate. So, um, you know, these things, these things are, statistics can be played with, and psychology has a lot to do with everything. Well, no, I, and I think that's a very good lesson. You, you spoke very clearly and articulately about your approach. If, um, if you're not going to fix a problem, from a prior relationship, and I and I guess you use the example of divorce, and that's a great example. You know, you're just going to be in an ongoing cycle of a parade of horribles. Um, if people learn from some of the mistakes that they've made in a prior relationship, I mean, they're less likely to get divorced a second or third time. And um, I think that you're very intuitive about trying to fix you know, underlying issues. Am I correct, Mark? And, well, you know, 
I would say that, thank you, I would say that that goes to the, what I think is the essence of mediation or collaborative uh, law, um, which from my perspective, and let me be clear, people have different definitions of mediation, and I've spoken about that um, in interviews before, and people have written about it, and there are such a large number of types of mediation that one person, you know, a, a one, one spouse might think mediation means something different than the other spouse, and they might think, they might both think something different than the mediator that they end up hiring. So I want to be careful when I say this, but my definition of mediation is not some inexpensive alternative although I do believe that it tends to be less expensive than a divorce, but I don't try to get people to consider doing it um, as a less expensive alternative. If they go into it that way, they're looking at it from the wrong perspective. For example, I view mediation as basically peeling an onion. You peel the layers of the onion in the course of the mediation to get to the core fear, interest, need, whatever. And you get to the core because if you get to the core, you can resolve the problem. If you are doing what traditional lawyers do, for example, and you're um, going to court and getting some kind of result for something that had occurred, you're punishing somebody for something that happened, for example, but you're not, or, or, you're, you're, or you're going to court and you're getting X amount of child support because you can, or you're getting X amount of property division because you can, or you're going to court to get a certain custody arrangement because you want to somehow bias the judge in your favor and against the other side. I see this happen all the time. The but reality it, um, is we're not get yes? I'm so sorry for interrupting. We have to take a commercial break. Very, very sorry. Told you I might have to be rude and uh, let the commercials rain for a second. But we will continue this when we get back right after All right. this. Stand by. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. If you have a question or comment, call in at 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Here's Cindy Rakowitz. We're back and we're talking to prestigious attorney Mark Baer. And um, I'm sorry I had to cut you off, but you were talking about, we were talking about psychology. We were talking about mediation and um, you were getting yes. very specific yes. and articulate about it. So why don't you continue from where we left off, but start yeah. off a little so, bit of a... So story. basically what I was saying is that if, if people go to court um, or are otherwise dealing with the ultimate symptom, they're, if they're treating the symptom, they are not treating the cause. That's like going to a doctor and you have an underlying problem. And you're just treating the particular symptom that the problem is causing. But now that that symptom is being treated, don't think that other symptoms aren't going to pop up because you didn't address the ultimate cause of the symptom. You just treated the symptom. When people are going to court, when they're fighting over this or that, when they're fighting over custody, they're fi- they're. they're trying to deal with a symptom. They're upset about something. They don't like something that, that uh, w- you know, that one of the parents, that the other parent did. Whatever, maybe, God forbid, but they do it all the time. They're pursuing a custody arrangement because they can get more child support at least in California, by having a larger percentage of the time with a child, or they're pursuing a custody arrangement because by giving the other parent less time, they have to pay less child support. And they're not supposed to do that, and they can't tell the courts that they're doing that, but the lawyers know that underneath a lot of the arguments are the money issues. And if the symptom is a fear of financial um, hardship, for example. And I'm not suggesting that the fear is rational. It could be, I mean, we've seen cases, that they've been written up, where somebody was going to receive $100,000 a month because it was a very, very high net worth case. And yet they didn't think that they could support themselves from that kind of money, which would shock most everybody. But they had this irrational fear. And if you're not getting to the fear, fear possibly being financial, that they're going to end up living under a bridge, whatever, then you're only treating the symptom. And when you do that, what happens is that the person, for example, does or doesn't get what they asked for in court, And what people don't realize is it's not over when it's over when you deal with things like this in this way. So you go to court, you win or lose on what it is that you were fighting on with regard to custody. 
somebody didn't get what they were asking for or neither person did. And lo and behold, six months later, you find yourself back there again because the person who didn't get what they wanted is now making more allegations against the other parent to try to get it this time around. Or if the other person managed to take time away from them, they go back into court, the other person to try to gain that time back by making accusations about the parent who um, got time taken away from them. You're just dealing with the symptom. You're not dealing with the ultimate underlying cause. And so I really don't believe that mediation should be viewed or perceived by anybody as some sort of an inexpensive alternative. Um, it can be. It is frequently. But I don't think that that should be how it's sold to the public because that's not what it is and that's not what it should be. It is getting to the underlying core of the problem in order to get a result that is going to be long-lasting. Yep, and, um, you know, I think that, you know, you are, it's kind of your school and you take it, very seriously, and you always do look with your clients to get to the core rather than, you know, a triage situation where you're fixing, uh, you know, a, a temporary wound, right? Um, mm -hmm. Putting, slapping a Band-Aid on it and sending them on to their, last, their next adventure in life. Yes, exactly. And I was just, I, I just, um, Tuesday... Went, went for uh, uh, teeth cleaning with my dental hygienist. I go, um, I, I, I've been going to her for years, and she, she didn't realize that I'm a mediator as well as a family law attorney, and so she was asking me a question about mediation because one of her patients who she had met with recently was, uh, is a mediator and was describing mediation to her, and she was, like most people, viewing it as a less expensive alternative where lawyers are not involved. Um, and I think that this is a real problem. And I, and I said to her, let me use this example that I like to, to, you know, to use to describe it, and you'll get a really good sense of what mediation is, and you'll understand why I use this example. I heard this at a lecture that I went to, uh, a seminar I went to, so it's, I can't take credit for coming up with it. But let's, let's say that a couple is fighting over community property assets, division of property. And let's say that among the uh, things that they're fighting over are eight oranges. And I'm going to use oranges. I realize they're, they're not worth that much money. I'm going to, you're going to understand why I use them, and I also want to be clear that the oranges could represent the children, it could represent a business, it could represent the house. And while the people may be spending a lot of money fighting over the oranges, I do want to point out that it wouldn't be the first time in the history of the world that people spend more money than it's, than, uh, it's worth to fight over a house or a business such that nobody can afford to buy that asset from the other spouse when it's done. They ultimately lose it or it has to get sold because no, nobody can afford to keep it anymore because of the legal fees that they spent fighting over it. So let's keep that in mind when we use this example. So you have eight oranges, and again, even though it's community property, meaning 50-50 property in the state of California, 
it does not mean that each gets four. One person could get eight, and the other person could get something of equivalent value to make it equal. Okay? So husband goes to his lawyer and says to his lawyer, I want all eight oranges. And his lawyer is sitting there with dollar signs in, in their eyes and, and uh, drooling, thinking this is going to be great, and says to the husband, no worries. I will fight to the death to get you all eight oranges, and if I can't get you those eight oranges, I'll go down fighting. And wife goes to her lawyer and says the exact same thing and the same result. And both lawyers start at it, fighting for the eight oranges for their clients, running up big bills, and ultimately the couple goes to court and the judge is in, a, uh, in, a, is in an equitable mood that day and decides, you know what, I'm just going to give each of you four oranges. And again, the judge didn't have to do that. He could have equalized it a different way. judge gives each of them four oranges. Sadly, most judges and lawyers believe that if neither side is happy with the result, it must have been a good result, and so therefore most judges and lawyers would agree or believe that each client receiving four oranges was a good result. And I'm going to tell you why it's not. It's not because nobody ever bothered asking why they each want the eight oranges. What if the reason that wife wanted the eight oranges was for the zest on the skin for cooking? And what if husband wanted all eight oranges for the juice? If we had known that, oh, and nobody bothers asking that in traditional law. If we knew that, we could have taken the skins off the oranges, given wife all eight skins, thus zest from all of them, and husband the innards. And unless I'm missing something here, they each would have gotten eight of what it was that they ultimately wanted, which was not the entire orange. Um, it, makes a, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you are really trying to change the way that people think and how conflict resolution is accomplished through traditional law. And when you're doing mediation, I suppose you have the creativity and more leeway to do that. Um, and it's, you know, you're, you're just making things, you're setting precedents. And I think that's what, where you do have a little bit more um, leeway in mediation than you would if you were in a more conventional situation. Am I right? Uh, you know, I, I agree uh, and, and disagree in the sense that, yes, you do have more creativity when you're not in the traditional forum, um, and I'm not a one-size-fits-all kind of person. I don't think I, I one of the most recent things that I wrote, I actually said that family law is not one-size-fits-all. It's not spandex. So, you know, I, I, uh, I agree with you, except that um, I can use my mediation techniques on my own client, for example, in a non-mediation uh, setting. If I think my client, oh, you know, shock, shocker, my client's being unreasonable about something. You know, recognize that part of the research that I've done is that while people are under stress, they're, they're 
performance on an IQ test actually diminishes by, I thought at the time I wrote the article, as much as 20%. It's as much as 30 And so when people are, uh, and that the IQ uh, performance drop, according to my research in family law, is for an extended period of time. It's from the time they first learn of the divorce or the separation first occurs, whichever happens first, uh, until approximately 18 months after the divorce is finalized. So for the entire time these lawyers are handling this case, the clients are not thinking clearly. So big shocker, my client is, is being unreasonable about something. Well, you know, if I can use my mediation techniques to get my client off of an unreasonable position, then I might be able to gain some movement on some resolution because my client was being unreasonable about something. And while um, I'm getting movement from the other side, maybe the other side will start to be more receptive because my client got off of an unreasonable position. And the interesting thing was that when I wrote an article about this, and I had done this effectively and have on many a case that's not in mediation, the lawyer on the other side of the case happened to be a lawyer who does mediations and, and collaborative work. And the lawyer um, who commented to me about this article says to me, well, I guess the other side now owes you uh, a quid pro quo. They owe you something to reciprocate. And I said, they don't owe me anything to reciprocate in the example that I gave. I said, my client was unreasonable about something. It didn't make sense what my client was asking for. My client realized that through my efforts. Why would the other side need to give up on something because my client was being unreasonable and recognized that? It's not as though my client was giving up on something reasonable, and therefore the other side needs to give up on something reasonable. Well, it all it all makes a lot of sense, and um, we're going to have to take another commercial break. And you articulate all of this really, really well, very simply. Thank you for explaining to our listeners um, with great examples your approach to mediation. Um, it makes a lot of sense. And we'll hear more from you after this commercial break. Mark Baird, don't go away. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Come on! 
free advice from crisis communications guru Cindy Rakowitz now. Call 866-472-5788. Let's get back to Stars of PR. Here's the host and CEO of PR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. We're back, and I think that this is a very educational show. Um, People get confused between what's traditional law, what's collaborative law, what's mediation. And I think that there are, you know, very colorful examples that illustrate each of these areas, um, words that are thrown out to the layman, and they don't understand what it is. And I want to thank Mark Baer for being his, you know, a lot of color commentary with great examples. And, um, you know, Mark, going back to each of these, you talk about traditional law, you know, you talk about mediation. How does collaborative law come into all of this? Well, there's what, what collaborative law is, and I, wa- I want to be careful because in mediation you can, you, you, you can, set up a mediation however you want. So you can bring in other professionals into a mediation. But collaborative law is designed as an interdisciplinary team approach. It's an interdisciplinary team model. It recognizes that, first of all, in family law, um, that word has two, uh, that term has two words. It has family and it has law. And what a lot of lawyers or uh, a significant amount of lawyers seem to have forgotten, as have people who are involved in the process, the first word is family. The second word is law. And as I've heard a family law judge say, family law has always been a hybrid. It's been a hybrid because it involves many more things than just the law. And I want to also be careful that no very few problems are merely about just the law. But in family law, we're dealing with family, we're dealing with law, we're dealing with finances, and we're dealing with emotions. And lawyers and judges have been trained in what? In the law. Just because they went to law school does not make them an expert or even particularly good at financial stuff. I want to give a really interesting example. I just purchased a transcript on a case because opposing counsel and I couldn't agree on what the judge had said in court. So we got a, I ordered a copy of the transcript. And the court reporter had me pay a certain amount of money to her for the transcript, which I did. And the opposing counsel got a copy of that transcript at a reduced uh, rate because she had already prepared it for me. So the opposing counsel sends me a letter computing what he owes me as his half of the cost, taking into account what he paid. And his numbers were wrong. And I had to point it out to him in my letter. Um, He couldn't even do simple math to figure out what he owed me after taking into account that I owe him half of what he spent, and he owes me half of what I spent, and taking those two numbers and subtracting one from the other. He couldn't do it. He came up with the wrong number. 
So I pointed it out to him in my letter. So people are really mistaken, first of all, when they think that because somebody is a lawyer who does family law that they happen to be good with finances. My major happened to be economics business. I could have gone to work at an accounting firm or to business school after I finished college. Instead, I went to law school. That doesn't mean that I consider myself to um, be an expert on numbers, nor can I be because I'm the attorney. I need to bring people like that in. I can't testify, for example, as the expert for my client on financial stuff. But I certainly probably know... um, uh, financial stuff better than somebody who, for example, in college their major was English. Um, oh, sure. But but um, but so so we're not recognizing that finances are a significant part of um, family law. So are emotions. Well, where is the training about how the brain functions and people process emotions? Where is the training that lawyers obtained? in law school about that. I must have been, I must have been sleeping in that class because that's not what we get taught in law school. So when we're dealing with an interdisciplinary practice, something that involves emotions, families, finances, law, who on earth really believes that lawyers by themselves are equipped to handle this practice properly? And you wonder why it's such a mess and why people's families are as screwed up as they are after it's finished. So, you know, uh, I, I have seen many a situation, for example, where people have rejected perfectly reasonable deals. Oh, and not only that, deals that are more beneficial to them than they would otherwise have gotten in court, maybe because the other side just wants it over. And they reject it. You think it's because um, emotions are getting in the way? Or you think it's because the deal's no good and they think they could do better? Because I'm telling you that in the examples I'm giving you, it was, it was a, a far better opportunity than what they could have received in court in the example I'm giving, and yet it gets rejected. And in, in collaborative practice, they recognize that a lot of this stuff involves things that lawyers are not skilled at handling because that's not our training. So you have an interdisciplinary team approach where you have mental health care professionals involved on the team, not giving therapy, coaching people with their emotions. You might have a child specialist involved to, to, to meet with the kids and be able to advise the, the parents as to what, what uh, would be a good parenting plan based on these parents, where they live, and having met with the child. Because what we also realize is that a child tells mom what the child thinks mom wants to hear and tells dad what they think dad wants to hear when there's a conflict between the parents because they want both parents to love them. So they tell them each something different that they think they each want to hear. They're not necessarily trying to cause trouble, but they ultimately do. And because the parents believe what the kids are telling them, and it could be completely opposite 
from one parent to the other. So if you have a child specialist, go in at the beginning and meet with the kids and find out what they really want, and then it's not the kids that come in and speak to the parents while their coaches are there to pick them up from the floor when, uh, when they hear what the child really wants and thinks. Then the, the child specialist comes in and does that and tells them what the child really wants and thinks and what the child specialist thinks would be good. And the child specialist is an adult. They're a therapist. They're not going to say things to the mom that mom wants to hear because they want to please mom or say things to dad that dad wants to hear because they want to please dad. They're going to say it as it is. And it makes a lot of sense. So we, we, we have a, a, a financial person involved to, to deal with financial issues. And, you know, the lawyers are involved in the process as well because a lot of this stuff has to do with legal. Um, you know, so we have all of these different people together. One of the things that kept me out of it longer than I should have uh, before I got trained to become a, a collaborative practitioner was that I was afraid that people couldn't afford the process because it has too many people involved. And um, what I came to realize is it's not so because what happens is if you look at an hourly rate for a, uh, an accountant or an hourly rate for a therapist or a psychologist, you're going to find that the hourly rate of the lawyer is far greater than the other professionals. So when you farm out aspects to other people in the team, you're, you're having that aspect addressed in a less expensive manner, and guess what? By somebody who's more appropriately suited for it. And don't think that when you're not doing that, that, you're not, that, that the emotions aren't being dealt with by the lawyer. Because they are in the sense that the client is doing things, asking the lawyer to do things, rejecting certain things, and they're doing it um, in cases where we don't have mental health professionals involved in litigation or mediation or whatever, and they're doing it all the time. And what happens is that the lawyer can only do what the lawyer is trained to do. So the lawyer rejects the offer that was perfectly beneficial to their client because the client wants it rejected. And instead, massive bills get run up, and the client ends up with a worse result. Not and good. who benefited? That's, the lawyer. No, that, well, and obviously, you know, not, not good in the long term, right? I mean, it's just not good. Listen, I want to talk more about this in our last segment. Um, I want to... When we pick up after the commercial break, um, you know, so, you know, so what's the better approach? You, you made a very, very good case for the contrast, okay? Mm -hmm. So what we're going to do in the next segment is we're going to sum up why, you know, there are better approaches. Does that sound good? Yes. Oh, okay. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Cindy Rakowitz has won more awards than she can hang on her wall, including three Clios. Call in now at 1-866-472-5788 and you can have one. Okay, maybe not, but she will answer your questions. Back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. We're back, and we are with Mark Bear, and we were talking about um, traditional law, collaborative law, mediation, particularly in the area of family law. And, Mark, in the last segment, you were talking about how um, sometimes these teams, you know, don't really benefit the families. They benefit the lawyers. Did I hear that correctly? No, no. Well, the, when we're talking teams, we're talking in collaborative. Those are designed to benefit the client. I'm talking about if you if you don't recognize that lawyers are not trained to handle um, people's emotional issues, then um, then what you end up having happen is you have a situation in which perfectly good deals are rejected by the lawyer because the client tells them to. For example. Um, or have the you know lawyer go and file costly motions or whatever, and the lawyer is doing what the client told the lawyer to do, and the lawyer justifies what they're doing because they're doing what the client asked them to do, but the client asked them to do that for emotional reasons, and therefore the client ends up damaging themselves ultimately um, because they're spending a lot of money on their lawyer, as is the other side, and it's being spent a lot of times because of emotional reasons. And so if we have a team approach where we have mental health professionals helping people constructively handle their emotions, now we can resolve things in a more constructive manner. And I want to point out, I want to read something from an article that I wrote so people understand um, where the emotions come in. When you have the IQ performance drop as a result of, a, uh, of stress, and I told you how long that that lasts, and by the way, this is, this, this is in any type of stressful situation. Here are, here are the ways that it plays out in real life. Um, so here's the sentence. This results in displays of some or all of a characteristic set of deleterious behaviors such as not listening, Overanalyzing, stops making decisions, 
makes emotional decisions, um, flip-flops, makes reactive, short-term, fear-based, or anger-facilitated decisions, acting in a way as to satisfy the minimum requirements for achieving a particular result, hedonistic, or the failure to notice something in plain sight. These are some of the ways that people under stress behave. We see it all the time. Clients probably notice it in their spouse or in the other side, and they're experiencing these symptoms themselves and may not realize it. And so the lawyers don't know how to deal with this. They're not trained in that. They're trained to deal with conflict. And the conflict, a lot of it is being caused because of these symptoms that are stress-related. And people then, you know, and it's fascinating, people want to shy away from mediation where you have professional involved in who's been trained, hopefully. Again, there's no, it's not regulated, so they may not have been. But hopefully they've been formally trained in conflict resolution or going to collaborative where everyone on the team, even if they're psychologists or financial people, have all been trained in mediation as well as collaborative divorce. And they're helping people deal with this stuff, these, these symptoms, they're helping them reach a, a result that is taking out those symptoms because they're constructively handling their, their affairs. We're peeling the onion. We're trying to get to the core. And so um, I think that the results end up being better than if you go and you, you go to an attorney who doesn't know any better or who's seeing dollar signs in their eyes, they're like, oh, this is wonderful. The, my client is highly emotional. I'm going to make a lot of money. A lot of people shy away from mediation and collaborative divorce because they say, I'm in a conflict situation. I can't do something where it's, uh, where it's consensual dispute resolution and I have to actually work with the other side to reach an ultimate result. Well, you know what? There isn't a divorce situation that doesn't involve conflict. It's a matter of degree. And, and you could have high conflict. I've had it. My mediation that I'm having today, it's with a, a couple that um, is, has been very high conflict. And the high conflict damaged the relationship between one of the parents and the children so much that the children are having a lot of issues now and acting out. So all of a sudden, they woke up and they decided to come and work with me. And, and we've been working on this and improving the relationship between the alienated parent and the children because the non-alienated parent realized that this was the only way to try to fix the damage that's been done to the children. This was caused by the way in which the couple decided to start handling the conflict by making it worse. And so every single case can be dealt with in mediation or collaborative unless there are certain levels of domestic violence and unless there are child safety issues. But for people to shy away from this because they say we're in conflict, because they say I don't trust my spouse, 
Nobody trusts their spouse while they're divorcing. Nobody has no conflict while they're divorcing. To shy away from it because of that doesn't make any sense at all. And the and the the what what this, what this couple has told me is that the stuff that they've learned through me that they find most invaluable, and I've been working with them for quite some time now, has been the, the fact that they have learned that to be respectful of each other, even if they don't agree with each other, and they have learned the husband has learned that he can actually do things to improve the relationship with the child or children and their mother instead of just letting it happen from the mother's efforts and the children's efforts at this point. So he didn't realize that he could actually be proactive and do stuff. So, you know, these are the things that are most invaluable. If, you, if anybody wants to think that that's a, a skill that you learn in law school, it's not. So, no, no I, I agree. I mean, we, we talked about emotional intelligence at the beginning of the show, and um, you, you don't really learn emotional intelligence in law school. Right. And, um, you know, we have a couple of minutes to the close. I told you that the hour goes very, very quickly. Um, is there anything you want to recap or revisit? And then I just want to ask you to wrap up really quickly. I know that you enjoy social media, and I want to, you know, ask you how that really helps you reinforce your points of views that are really pretty constructive. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing that you, you say that, I, I, I have to tell you, because um, I, I've used the social media and, uh, quite a bit, and, and I was contacted in uh, June by a reporter for a magazine called... Um, Bigger Law Firm Magazine. I had never heard of it before, but apparently it's a magazine that you have to pay to subscribe to. And this reporter contacted me because of my blogging and my presence on the social media and asked me if I would be willing to give him an interview to be the expert in this particular column um, in order to educate others as to how to be able to do this effectively. And I agreed to do the interview, and I did. And I put it out there. On, on the, um, in various LinkedIn groups. And as with a lot of the stuff that I happen to pen or be in, it is fascinating what happens with this stuff. People move it from the discussions section to the promotions section, which, by the way, in LinkedIn, nobody reads the promotion section. So, because you'd think that there's promotions in there, so nobody goes and looks in there. So they move, they either w delete my posting or they move it to the promotion section because they find it self promotional and it's really fascinating because, and they did it with this article. And then there was this discussion in a particular collaborative law group on LinkedIn and they moved this to the promotions section as they've done with many of my writings, and where nobody can read it. And they're having a discussion in that group about what could be done to help promote collaborative divorce. And yet here I write an article to help people learn how to do this kind of stuff. And what do they do? They moved it to the promotion section where nobody will see it in order to learn. 
it's absolutely amazing. So I put something, um, I put something on uh, a comment in the various places that didn't move it to the promotion section because I'm so tired of people viewing my stuff as promotional. It's not meant to be. And I got an interesting comment I want to read. Okay, we only have, we have to wrap up, so you have to read it quickly. Yeah. She said, it is self-promotion, and that's a good thing. From where I sit, there's nothing wrong with self-promotion. If you don't go out there and promote your services, how will people need to, who need you otherwise find you? How will you be able to establish, establish yourself as an expert in the field without promotion? The beauty of this article is that while you are self-promoting, you are also offering valuable information. I call that a win-win. I teach mediation, and I'm consistently frustrated by the fear and uncomfortability of self-promotion and that many students share. If more mediators were out there self-promoting, maybe, maybe the public would have a better idea of what mediation is and how to use it. Go, Mark, go. Well, you know, here in mediation groups and collaborative groups, these lawyers aren't taking the information off of these articles that I write or share. Instead, they're viewing it as promotional. Of course, it's promotional to some degree because my name is in it or I wrote it or I posted it. But that doesn't mean that they can't take good material and information from it. But this is one of those things where people cut their nose to spite their face. Well, I think that's true. And I think we should have you on as a guest to talk about social media a little bit more in depth because that's a whole other hour. And I'm sorry that I have to cut it short. Give us your website so everybody knows where to go. It's M-A-R-K-B-A-E-R-E-S-Q.com. MarkBearESQ.com. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank you for spending the hour. This show should be ready and uploaded by the end of the day today, um, voiceamerica.com. Mark, thank you so much for spending the time and sharing your passionate points of views. And we're going to have you on again. Okay? Oh, thank you. Thank All you. Right, so everybody. Will, you, will you be sending me the link to this or should I um, look it up later? We could do both. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> All right, everybody have a great week, and I'll see you all um, next week for um, Stars of PR. Thank you for listening to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Please come back next Thursday and every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern for more insider information on the world of public relations with Cindy Rakowitz on Stars of PR. See you next week. I am an American idol. I got synthetic to sell. I kill my mama to get out of the